Good morning. The scripture reading for today is from Nehemiah 4, 1 through 5. Now when Sanballat heard that they were that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 5. Thank you, Debbie, for the reading. And thank you, Deirdre, for sharing. If you're, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're in the midst of a series on Ezra and Nehemiah, and this, it's part of this broad story of the history of Israel. If you're unfamiliar with that kind of story within the Old Testament, you have these people, the Jews, Israel, the people of God, that God pulled out of really nowhere, obscurity. He picked one man, Abraham, and said, I choose you, and you and every kid you're ever going to have are going to be my people and I'm going to care for you, I'm going to love you, I'm going to make you into this great nation, into this holy people, and you're going to do great things in my name. All these promises to this one family, to these one people. And these people grow in numbers, in power. They do claim a kingdom and a land, and they have a king, and they build a temple and palaces and all of these things, but it all comes crumbling down. And they get exiled. They get taken over by a foreign power, Babylon comes in and they conquer, they tear down these walls that they had built, really magnificent walls, a magnificent temple. Under their one king, under Solomon, I mean, everyone in the world came to see the grandeur of Jerusalem that he had built. It was unbelievable. His temple was unlike anything. Those city walls were unlike anything. And they still stand today. You can still go and see the foundations of the wall that Solomon built because they're that great but they all come down. The Babylonians come in and they destroy everything and they take them all away and now they spend 70 years in exile in a foreign country, in a foreign land. And at the end of this time, the Spirit of the Lord works and moves and starts to send them home. And especially working in the hearts of Ezra and Nehemiah, saying, go back and rebuild my city. Go back and establish again my my place for my people. And so they go back. And like last week, if you were here uh, and Mike read all of those names from this previous chapter in chapter 3 of everyone who's building the city, they do it. They rebuild the city walls. So they're working on the city walls. Everyone in the town takes a small part. Some people take small parts of the wall. Some people have large parts of the wall. But everybody's working and they're going to rebuild these city walls. And here in chapter 4, these kings mock the efforts that they're doing. They ridicule them. They sit and they look at what the Jews are trying to do. And it is probably worthy of ridicule in a lot of ways. Saying, what do they think they're doing? What are these feeble Jews doing? Do they really think they're going to be able to do this? Look at the people they have building these walls. 
right? Because that was part of the last chapter three. There's perfumers building walls and jewelry makers building walls, women building the wall. Look, do they, look at this. Look at this effort that they're doing. Do they really think they're going to be able to do anything? The cutting accusation in there too is, you know, do you really think, do they really think they're ever going to be able to offer sacrifices again? Do they really think that this effort of theirs is ever going to please their God? That they're ever going to be able to offer something acceptable to him? A place, rebuild a house for him that he would ever want to live in? I mean, are they ever going to be able to do this? Do they ever think they're ever going to finish? Where are they going to get the abilities? Where will they get the skill to be able to do this? Where will they get the resources? Look what they're using to build the walls. It's all burnt rubble. Where are they going to get the wood? Where are they going to get the stone? How? They can't do it. And even if, and even if they do build it, we can just knock it down. That's that that phrase about the fox. So, you know, just a fox will go on that wall and it'll fall. All this effort's just foolish anyway. Even if they did somehow manage to rebuild a wall, it'll all just come crumbling down and these feeble people will find themselves right back where they were when they started. It's, it's strong accusations and mockery. You know, as you read it, it feels, on a cursory reading, it feels like Nehemiah is a bit um, defensive when he now all of a sudden, because he hears these kings are mocking them, now prays in outrage to God to kind of blot them out and don't, you know, whoa, can't you take some joking and, <laughs> you know, just prove them wrong? You know, why are you, why are you praying to the Lord like this? Why are you getting so outraged? But really, if you, if you understand the Old Testament and Scripture, how it kind of works together, how these stories are all connected and types of stories and repeated stories, this accusations and this mockery of the kings, this isn't new in the history of Israel, that voice. It's been there all the way from Genesis on, from the serpent in the garden, and it'll continue all the way through Scripture, this mocking, accusing voice. Every turn in God's story of redemption of his people, they're being accused and mocked with those same types of questions. Do you really think God loves you? Do you really think he's going to deliver you? Do you really think you even deserve to be delivered? Do you really think you're not just going to go back to all of your old ways again? Do you really think this time is going to be different? Do you really think everything that you have lost could be restored? Don't you know what you've done? Don't you know what's been done to you? Don't you understand the enemies that are all around you and you think you're something special? That you have a Lord who will fight for you? Who do you think you are? And there is that accusing and mocking voice that dogs Israel through their whole existence. Where is your God that you claim is yours? You you say he loves you, show me. You say he's going to deliver you, show me. You're just going to go back. You're never going to change And this God of yours is always going to punish you and hurt you because you're never going to be good enough to earn his love. 
This mocking and accusing voice continues through the New Testament. If you know anything about the story of Jesus, he is ridiculed and mocked time and time again. And then eventually on the cross where there's, where is your God? You know, (laughs) here you go, right? This is the Messiah you've been long waiting for. And they mockingly put that sign over his head. Here's the king of the Jews who's supposed to be your savior. You know, look at him now. It's just this accusing, accusing, accusing. The early church mocked and accused the disciples. It's this continual voice. And it's the same voice that we hear today. It's this voice of the accuser who surrounds us and who keeps saying these same things. That that voice of these ancient kings that are long forgotten. Right? That voice, though, continues today. And we still hear the echoes of those same accusations. Who do you think you are? You know you can't really change. You're the same person you've always been. Sure, you've outwardly are looking different. You've tried some stuff. You're rebuilding the walls of your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we all know who you really are. Don't pretend. You're a failure and a disappointment. You know you're just going to do it again. You know you're going to ruin everything. Who do you think you are? What do you think will happen to you when everybody else figures out who you are? If they actually found out those things about you that you've been hiding, what then? All these people around you are just like the last ones, right? This generation's just as bad as the last generation. The people around you are just as bad as the last people. They're going to do the same things to you. You can't trust anybody. You can only trust yourself. Do you really think God can love you and use you? Someone like you. And those voices, that accusation, these lies, echo around in our minds and in our hearts, and they cut us. Because there's a lot of truth in them. And just like the king's intention with Israel those accusations and mockery keep us from participating in God's plans for us. Where we say, you know, you're right. (laughs) You're absolutely right. And that's why I've got to keep that guard up. That's why I can't do these things. It's why I got to keep going with making sure that nobody knows these things about me. And it prevents us. It holds us back from participating in this work of gospel renewal. Because those accusations ring true and we hear them. We're reminded over and over of the things that we've done and of the things that are done to us. Right? This is a human experience, right? Where those, those, it's like a movie starts playing in our minds, right? And it hits us at the worst times where you're like, wow, I was an idiot. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that's what, it just, it just the, the shame and the guilt of the past comes sweeping in at these moments. Right when we're about to do something or we need to do something is when we feel those waves of guilt and shame and that accusing voice. Who are you? Who do you think you really are? In light of what you've done and in light of what's been done to you, do you really think you can do anything and make a difference in this world? And historically, this has always been a problem 
because the church, the church always has done a pretty good job of dealing with guilt, but has historically faltered when it comes to shame. Those two things are different. If you've gone through a redemption group, that's a really helpful thing to go through, that study. And Mike Wilkerson in his book does an excellent job of, of showing how guilt and shame are not the same. These are different ideas. You know, so Mike Wilkerson in that book, Redemption, would say that guilt, you feel guilt over the things that you've done. Right? I feel guilty for this. I did this, and I have a lot of guilt for it. Right? I know that that was wrong. I know that it hurt somebody, and I regret it. I feel guilt for that. But shame is really about who we are, not about the things that we've done. They go hand in hand. Because of what I've done, I now view myself, or because of the things that have been done to me, like Deirdre's story of the young girl, right, things were done to her. We take those experiences, we have that guilt, this is what I've done, and now that becomes who we are, and we feel shame. Not over the things that we've done. We can be forgiven, and many of us get forgiven, and we have that, that feeling of freedom from the forgiveness, like, yes, wow, it's a profound thing to be forgiven by someone you've wronged, right? I mean, my wife has forgiven me. My children have forgiven me. People have forgiven me. And it just, it's, it's, un- it's unbelievable. I mean, it's undeserved. But I can still be overcome by shame. Even though I've been forgiven, I never get over, we never get over that feeling of now who we are. We still feel ashamed because we know that things are not right. Some things can't be undone, right? The effects of our sin. And we feel that weight of it. You know, when you look at the biblical account of, of sin, of guilt and shame, you know, that every sin, our guilt, the things that we do, it rips apart that fabric of life, that peace, that shalom that we are supposed to experience, that we're supposed to have, this world is supposed to have. And it's ripped, it's torn. Many of us have experienced that really closely where we have done something and it has ripped apart relationships. It's ripped apart the peace, or at least the seeming peace that we had. Or others have done something to us or around us. It's just, it's now irreparable. It's just now broken. And we feel that. No matter how much forgiveness I've given, no matter how many times I say I'm sorry or someone tells me it's okay, I forgive you. I don't hold that against you anymore. It's really still hard to not feel ashamed, to not have a distrust of people. Like in the garden, that picture of, because the guilt and the shame go straight together with Adam and Eve right from the garden. You know, they did something that was wrong. They didn't obey God. They broke his law and his good commands They didn't trust him. They listened to that accusing voice that God doesn't really love you. So they did it. And then instantly with it came shame. They saw each other. They saw themselves. And they realized they were naked. And they desperately tried to cover themselves up. Trumper Longman gives that picture of shame too as this just exposure, a realization of being naked. That's being shame. That's what the feeling of shame is. Exposed. Whoa. I, I don't want you to see me. Because when you think about it with Adam, I mean, there's just two people. <laughs> I don't trust the other person to see me. 
I don't trust them anymore. I don't know if what they, I, I can't let them see me now because they are going to use that against me. I don't know if they can truly see me and still love me because of what I've done. We feel this need to cover ourselves. And that's what shame does. I feel the guilt of what I've done. I feel the shame of what I've done. And that feeling of shame is that realization, whoa, if people saw this, if they knew this, if they could see this, I, 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 can't, I can't trust anybody with this. And, and we feel incredibly ashamed when we get caught in those moments. So we try to clothe ourselves, if it's with you know, leaves or with <laughs> skins. But with all of these things, we try to desperately cover that nakedness, that, that guilt and that shame. And I think what we do with our shame, I think there's kind of three go-to, I feel like with a sermon you have to have three things usually, but I don't know, it just seems to work that way. But I think there's three things, at least I do, with my shame that I think are universal that you see everybody do to deal with this. Because this feeling of guilt and shame, we all experience it. We all have this. And so we're all trying to deal with it. And I think the first thing that we do, and especially, maybe it's a Midwestern thing, we make light of sin. That's for sure my go-to. It's just not that big a deal. You know, my sin, sin is not... I mean, don't call it, I wouldn't call it that. You know, what that person did to me wasn't really that big a deal. What I'm doing, it's not, I mean, just because I lose my temper every now, it's not a big, it's a personality trait. It's just the way I'm wired. It's, you know, if you just knew my Enneagram number, we could figure this out. You know, like, you just kind of make light of it. And you just make these things, you don't call them sin. You call it personality traits. You call it just, just who I am. You just make light of it. It's no big deal. It's not, I mean, it's not like I'm doing really bad stuff. No. It's a huge deal. Anger is horrible and appalling to God, and I am ruining my children and my relationships. How dare I make light of that? That's not a little thing. It's a huge thing, and I need repentance of it. It's like what George is talking about with this gospel renewal. When you see the Israel, when true gospel renewal comes, when we take sin seriously, when we grow frustrated with our sin, when we cry out to God and say, I don't, this isn't good. This isn't me anymore. I'm tired of this and I put it off. Right? But we have a tendency because of that guilt and the shame, because it just feels easier to minimize what we do to other people and what they do to us. It doesn't hurt as much, right? If we just kind of have a stiff upper lip just kind of, no big deal. It's all fine. But it's not fine. And we know it's not fine. And the fruit of it is, eventually, is comes out of those cracks. Right? We just can't hold it together. There's those moments every now and then, like C.S. Lewis gives, of like going into a basement when you flip on the light switch and you see all the cockroaches, you know, and it's like, whoa, <laughs> what, what, what just happened here? Right? Well, flipping the light switch on quick didn't make them appear. It just enabled you to see them for the first time. You know, it's in there. That sin within me is ugly, and I want to take care of it. I'm tired of minimizing my sin, making light of it. Oh, I guess we got the timer. I'll try to walk over here. See if it comes back on. Oh, I think it's, maybe not. Well, we'll see. Hopefully, if the gym goes completely dark, start walking. I'll maybe try to walk. The other thing we tend to do, I think we, so we make a lot of light of our sin. Maybe I'll keep walking. We make light of our sin. The second thing that we do is we keep our distance from people. Where we just say, look, I can't trust you. 
I will, I will curate a version of myself that I will trust you with, <laughs> right? I mean, I will, you know, and this is what social media is so great for. You know, there's a great Calvin and Hobbes, if you ever remember Calvin and Hobbes. I have a soft spot for Calvin and Hobbes, where he makes a transmogrifier or something. I can't remember what the title of it was, but it's a big cardboard box where you can come in one side and come out the other as anything else you want. But that's social media. I can go in and then come out as whoever I want to be and make sure that people see a certain version of me. And I'm going to keep the things about me that I don't want anybody to know very distant. And so I'll stay distant. I, I pick and choose my moments. I pick and choose my people that I will share things with. And in essence, because I really have, we all have this real strong desire to be known. It's why we come. It's why you're here. It's why you come to church. It's why we come to like small groups and house churches. We want community. The world is desperate for community and connection and family and all of those things. We really want to be intimately known. What a, I mean, no one has, a, we all have that strong desire to be intimately known. But there's also an equal paralyzing fear of being known intimately and then rejected and not loved. But it's also, the, the converse is really hollow and unfulfilling, and churches are good at that too, of just loving, but without knowing. And you're like, well, your love is, I mean, I know you keep telling me you love me, and you keep inviting me over and giving me hugs, and I'm, but you don't know me. And that does, it, that's, that's hollow. We want, we have this strong desire of wanting to be known, but fear of being loved because we know who we are, and if they really found out who we were, they couldn't, they couldn't really love me if they knew me. So I think the third option we go to, and I think I swing through all three, is then we overcompensate. And we just say, all right, kings of the Amorites, I'll prove you wrong. You think you know me. You don't know me. I will overcommit. I will do so many things. I will throw myself into this. I will be super open, right? First night of small group, I'm going to share everything with everyone and be completely transparent because I'm going to show you how much I've changed. And I can prove to you. And, and we use that like how good we are at community life or how much we can do as evidence that we're not going to go back, right? I'm not that person anymore. Look at me. Look at me now. I'm, I'm never going to be that person again. I'm doubling down my efforts and I can show you that I'm really changed, your accusations are all lies, right? I'm really, this time I'm going to do it. But eventually and inevitably, right, our efforts fail. We burn out. We get tired. Can't keep it up. <laughs> you just say, I just, I'm just tired of this. I can't do it anymore. All right, I've been trying so hard. I've been bare knuckling, white knuckling, whatever it's called, right? Like I can do it, but I just, I can't. I can't do it anymore. And on our own, our ability to deal with our shame, our efforts to clothe ourselves ultimately are hollow and unable to do it. Which is why, right, the gospel is such great news, which is why we gather together to sing praises and songs to Jesus Christ, because he's the one who clothes us instead of us needing to clothe ourselves. We're so trying, so desperately, working so hard to clothe ourselves in righteousness, create images of ourselves, curate an image, do all these things, avoid all these things. But Christ is the one, right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on himself that same accusing voice that we hear. This is why he was mocked and ridiculed. You're a failure. You're a disappointment. 
you've let everyone down. You will let everybody down. You can't keep it together. God can't possibly love you. No one could possibly love you. He endured the scorn and the ridicule that it was aimed at me like a laser (laughs) because I really deserve all that scorn and ridicule. And he stepped in front of it and absorbed all of it. He took all of those accusations upon himself. The whole world accused him instead of me. And even though he had done nothing to deserve it, he took all of it. And in his death and in his resurrection, he comes back victorious over all the lies. Right? He disarms the enemies, if you know Colossians. In his resurrection, right? because he got all the scorn, all the ridicule, that voice of Scripture directed on him, he takes it, and then when he rises from the dead, he proves it wrong. <laughs> Where are you accusers now? Right? You asked to see our God, here he is. Right? He comes up in glory, proving those accusers' voices were hollow and empty. And then what he does is in that glory, with that credit, that righteousness, the one who is proved worthy of everything, gives that record to us. And says, everything I've earned, everything I deserve, is now theirs. He clothes us in his record, in his righteousness, in his work, in everything that he's done. That's the gospel. Making everything true of him, now true of us as his children. Who could do nothing. Couldn't, I can't clothe myself. So he clothed me in his record, his life. It says, any accusation against them is an accusation against me. Everything that's true of him is now true of us. He gives us these new identities that just can't be assaulted. He ushers in, he brings in the kingdom of God. That's why the gospels talk that way. When he comes, he makes true what will be true on that glorious day. When I will, anger will no longer be an issue. Right? My sins will no longer be an issue. Well, that's true now. I have that freedom now. Even though my sin continues, it persists. These things come up. It's not who I am anymore. Because Jesus brought the kingdom here. He gave me my identity early. He lets me walk in it now. That everything about me is new. And this experience of newness, not just forgiveness, because that takes care of our guilt. And you can be told how Jesus has forgiven you. I was told that from a very young age. And all that tends to do in me, at least, is instill the need to like earn something or like pay it back. You know, that weight or guilt of like, oh, I've been forgiven by some, I better do something. But, but this newness that he's given me is an experience that we're called to walk in. It's the experience that you see Nehemiah walk in. It's why he cries out so quickly. And it's what we're called to do too. This call to action for us as a church, in light of the gospel, in building this new city, working for the kingdom, taking part and participating in it, we need to join with Nehemiah in crying out. Nehemiah cries out to God immediately. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. It's the same cry that you can see it's hundreds of times through the Psalms. It's all the way through Scripture. It's Jesus in the garden. And it's this cry of, don't let me be ashamed for trusting in you, God. This is Paul in Philippians. right? Don't let me be ashamed for trusting in you. We need to cry that out. 
in these moments of weakness, in the, when we hear the accuser's voice, when we hear that guilt and the shame being piled upon us again, who do you think you are? Lord, I am being attacked and mocked and ridiculed. Don't let me be ashamed, right? Let me trust in you. I trust you that I will make it through this. I will not be put to shame. I will have redemption, right? Deliverance. That picture from Philippians that George was giving about what deliverance really means. It doesn't mean my suffering goes away. <laughs> it means I'll make this through. I will not be let down by God in the midst of this. I trust you. And we join with Nehemiah. We recognize our desperate need of being clothed in righteousness. Israel is going to take sin incredibly seriously during this time. They recognize their sin and they desperately see their need. Where really for a lot of us that means we need to stop making light of sin. And we need to start getting serious about our sins. And being disgusted by them. Where we, we recognize our need for being clothed by him. And we also start putting all of our hope in Jesus and none of our hope in ourselves to do it anymore. It's that image of just being dissatisfied with the filthy rags that we keep dressing ourselves in. <laughs> like, this is pointless. I don't want this anymore. I want Christ's righteousness. I want what he's promised. I want that. And it starts with that just genuine desire for that because if you've being forgiven is one thing, but it's easy to, be, to live in that world of knowing that you're forgiven, but then being satisfied with this curated life you've built for yourself. This is what George has been talking about with this Ezra Nehemiah series, this gospel renewal. Being th this lie of the American kind of life of I'm content, I'm good, everything's fine, I've got a lot. No, right? That's not what Christ has called me to, to be content with just the everyday, you know, life. I want his life. And I will give anything for that new life. I want to look like him. I want to have his righteousness on a daily level. I want him to clothe me. And it's in those moments of seeking after him that we experience him and we experience God fighting for us and with us. Through the rest of this chapter, of chapter 4, they start to build. They, they continue building the wall, just as they were describing how everyone is building the wall, but they're also going to have to fight while they build the wall because these enemies are coming now. And so they have people fighting while they're building. And what Nehemiah gives them, these words are so strikingly similar to Moses, to Joshua, to just every leader of Israel, continually reminding the people. Where he reminds them in verse 14, Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. We need that. I need, to be remember, I need to remember those things. I need to remember that the Lord is great and awesome. In verse 20, he says, Our God will fight for us. What a powerful phrase that's repeated through the Psalms, that's through the Exodus. Like, who do you think does your fighting for you? <laughs> right? The, our God fights for us. We are vindicated by God. When the accuser asks us, who do you think you are? Because that's the voice that Israel is hearing. It's the voice that I hear. It's the voice that we all are hearing. Who do you think you are in light of everything that you've done, in light of everything that's been done to you? Who do you think you are? And in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I can confidently answer I'm God's son in whom he's fully pleased. 
or I'm God's daughter who he has redeemed and cleansed. I am fully known and fully loved. I have nothing to hide. Every intimate part of me has been known and every intimate part of me has been redeemed and washed. And I have all of this love from the Father. The only judgment, the only person's voice that matters to me says, this is who I love. This is my child who I love. And I find nothing wrong with them. They're perfect. They're clean. They're spotless, righteous. And when that voice, right, when we hear that voice, it drowns out all the lies and the accusations, the mocking, those kings, right? Because we crumble under those accusing voices. I, I, I do. Historically, I've always had a hard time with criticism. But as I've grown in Christ and hearing his voice and experiencing that more and more and more, right, the, that critical voice that you may hear, it doesn't affect because I, I may have guilt, I may do wrong things, and I need to get corrected for it, but that's not who I am. Right, I disconnect those things. That what I do isn't me. Right? And so I don't have shame. The shame is lifted. I recognize my behavior is wrong. And so I can openly confess it. I can openly talk about it. I don't even have to hide from it. I don't have to worry what people are going to think of me. Or, oh, he's a pastor. He's disqualified if he did that. I can't believe. No, what are you talking about? I have sin. What's the problem with sin? You have sin. It's just sin. Sin's been dealt with. Christ died for that. You know, why am I making a big deal of my sin in the sense of it's not connected to me anymore? But I eagerly put it off. I eagerly speak of it. We expose it to the light and we pray to the Lord and we hear his voice and experience that freedom that comes from knowing that it's my God who fights for me, who fought for me, who claimed me, and I have nothing to fear. Right? There's no enemy that could ever prevail against me, right? Like those kings are just empty threats. The rulers and authorities, the enemy in Colossians has been disarmed. They've got nothing against me, which means no matter what I've done, no matter what I will do, no matter what's been done to me, it's not who I am. And the freedom of that is really beautiful. <laughs> if you haven't experienced that freedom of having your shame removed, of walking in that newness, you may not be able to get this, this idea of gospel renewal that Ezra Nehemiah, this series is going, until you experience that. It's hard. Until you've experienced that newness of life, it's hard because it becomes, it's still your work. You may get this idea that you were forgiven, but the guilt and the shame will continue to dog you and prevent you from putting off your sin and putting on newness because there's part of that old identity you're still clinging to. There's parts of those clothes that you've been clothing yourself in that you just don't want to give up yet. And so it's really hard to do. And it prevents you from actually trusting that God has put you in a place and at a time to do the things that he's called you to do. Much like you were saying with the prison ministry things, like, who are you to do that? You don't know these little people. You haven't lived that. Well, that's that accusing voice. If you don't have your identity wrapped up in the things that you do or haven't done or know or don't know, 
right? You'll always limit yourself. You'll always hold back from participating fully in God's plans and His purposes for you. And so I invite you, and all of us, as we continue to seek this renewal, and next week we're going to really talk about the role of prayer in this and in the role of renewal, but it's to pray. If you don't pray, if you never pray, or if you pray very formulaically, or that's a hard thing, it's, it may be awkward, but start to pray. And start to pray like the Psalms. If you're looking for a place just to start, just open up the book of Psalms and just psalm, pray Psalm 1 and just work your way through. These are the prayers. These are the prayers of Nehemiah. Oh, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't think I can do this. I got enemies all around me. My body is failing me. My life is failing me. Lord, don't put, let me be put to shame for trusting in you. Right? Cry out to the Lord because it's the Lord who will fight for you. Let me pray.